Chapter 10 of Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms by Haywood Bruin. Mr. Dempsey's Five Foot Shelf. It is hardly fair to expect Jack Dempsey to take literature very seriously. How, for instance, can he afford to pay much attention to George Bernard Shaw, who declared just before the fight that Carpentier could not lose and ought to be quoted at odds of fifty to one? From the point of view of Dempsey, then, creative evolution, the Superman and all the rest, are the merest moonshine. He might well take the position that since Mr. Shaw was so palpably wrong about the outcome of the fight two days before it happened, it scarcely behooves anybody to pay much attention to his predictions as to the fate of the world and mankind two thousand years hence. Whatever the reason, Jack Dempsey does not read George Bernard Shaw much, but he has heard of him. When some reporter came to Dempsey a day or so before the fight, and told him that Shaw had fixed fifty to one as the proper odds on Carpentier, the champion made no comment. The newspaper gossiper, disappointed of his sensation, asked if Dempsey had ever heard of Shaw, and the fighter stoutly maintained that he had. The examination went no further, but it is fair to assume that Dempsey did know the great British sporting writer. It is not remarkable that he paid no attention to his prediction. Dempsey would not even be moved much by a prediction from Huey Fullerton. In other words, literature and life are things divorced in Dempsey's mind. He does read. The first time we ever saw Dempsey, he discussed books with not a little interest. He was not at his training quarters when we arrived, but his press agent showed us about. A singularly reverential man, this press agent. This, he said, as he seemed to lower his voice, is the bed where Jack Dempsey sleeps. All the Louises knew better beds, and so did Lafayette, even when a stranger in a strange land. Washington himself fared better in the midst of war. Nor can it be said that there was anything very compelling about the room in which Dempsey slept. It had air, but not much distinction. There were just two pictures on the wall. One represented a heavy surf upon an indeterminate but rather rock-bound coast, and the other showed a lady asleep with cupids hovering about her bed. Although the thought is erotic, the artist had removed all that in the execution. Much more striking was the fact that upon a chair beside the bed of Dempsey lay a couple of books and a magazine. It was not The Bookman, but Photoplay. The books were The Czar's Spy by William LeCoux, The Spoilers by Rex Beach, and at least one other Western novel, which we have unfortunately forgotten. It was, as we remember it, The Luck of the Lazy Something or Other. The press agent said that Jack read quite a little and pointed to the reading light which had been strung over his bed. 
He then went on to show us the clothes closet and the bureau of the champion to prove that he was no slave to fashion. We can testify that only one pair of shoes in the room had gray suede tops. Then we saw the kitchen and were done. There had been awe in the tones of the conductor from the beginning. Jack's going to have roast lamb for dinner tonight, he announced in an awful hush. Even as we went out, he could not resist lowering his voice a little as he said, This is the hat rack. This is where the champion puts his hat. We had gone only fifty yards away from the house when a big brown limousine drew up. That, said the press agent, and this time we feared he was going to die, is Jack Dempsey himself. The preparation had been so similar to the first act of Enter Madame that we expected temperament and gesture from the star. He put us wholly at ease by being much more frightened than any one in the visiting party. As somebody has said somewhere, any mouse can make this elephant squeal. Jack Dempsey is decidedly a timid man, and we found later that he was a gentle one. He answered, yes, sir, and no, sir, at first. If we had his back and shoulders, we'd have a civil word for no man. By and by, he grew a little more at ease, and someone asked him what he read. He was not particularly strong on the names of books, and he always forgot the author, which detracts somewhat from this article as a guide for readers. There was almost three hundred books at his disposal, since his training quarters had once been an aviation camp. These were the books of the Flyers. Practically all the popular novelists and short story writers were represented. We remember seeing several titles by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, Irvin Cobb, Zane Gray, Rupert Hughes, and Rex Beach. Older books were scarce. The only one we noticed was A Tale of Two Cities. This Dempsey had not read. Perhaps Jack Kearns advised against it on account of the possible disturbing psychological effects of the chapter with all the counting. Dempsey said he devoted most of his time to Western novels. When questioned, he admitted that he did not altogether surrender himself to them. I was a cowboy once for a while, he said. There's a lot of hokum in those books. But when pressed as to what he really liked, his face did light up, and he even remembered the name of the book. There was one book I've been reading, he burst out. It's a fine book. It's called The Czar's Spy. Perhaps, suggested Ruth Hale of the visiting party, a grand duke would say there was a lot of hokum in that. Dempsey was not to be deterred by any such higher criticism. Never having been a grand duke, he did not worry about the accuracy of the story. It was in a field apart from life. That, we gathered, was his idea of the proper field for fiction. In life, Dempsey is a stern realist. It is only in reading that he is romantic. A more impressionable man would have been disturbed by the air of secrecy which surrounded the camp of Carpentier. That never worried Dempsey. He prepared himself and never thought up contingencies. He did not even like to talk fight. None of us drew him out much about boxing. 
Someone told him that Jim Corbett had reported that when he first met Carpentier, he had been vastly tempted to make a feint at the Frenchman to see whether or not he would fall into a proper attitude of defense. Yes, giggled Dempsey, and it would have been funny if Carp had busted him one on the chin. This seemed to him an extraordinary humorous conceit, and he kept chuckling over it every now and then. While he was in this good humor, somebody sounded him out as to what he would do if he lost, or rather the comment was made that an old-time fighter, once a champion, was now coming back to the ring and had declared that he was as good as he ever was. "'Why shouldn't he?' said Dempsey, just a little sharply. "'Nobody wants to see a man that says he isn't as good as he used to be.' "'Would you say that?' he was asked. "'Well,' said Dempsey, and this time he reflected a little. "'It would all depend on how I was fixed. "'If I needed the money, I would. "'I'd use all the old alibis.' "'We liked that frankness, and we liked Dempsey again "'when somebody wanted to know "'how he could possibly say anything in the ring "'during the fight to get the goat of Carpentier. "'We ain't nearly well enough acquainted for that,' said Dempsey, "'and we gathered that he was of the opinion "'that you must know a man pretty well "'before you can insult him. "'The champion is not a man "'to whom one would look for telling rejoinders, "'though he has needed them often enough "'in the last year and a half. "'Criticism has hurt him, "'for he is not insensitive.' He is merely inarticulate. This must have been the reason which prompted some sporting writers to feel that he would come into the ring whipped and down from the fact that he had been able to make no reply to all the charges brought against him. It did not work out that way. Dempsey did have a means of expression, and he used it. There is no logic in force, and yet a man can exclaim, Is that so? with his fists. Dempsey said it. If we may be allowed to stretch a point, it might even be hazarded that the champion's motto is, say it with cauliflowers. As the Freudians have it, fighting is his escape. Decidedly, he is a man with an inferiority complex. But for his boxing skill, he would need literature badly. As it is, he does not need to read about hair-breath escapes he has them, such as in the second round of the fight on Boyle's Thirty Acres. In summing up, we can only add that as yet literature has had no large effect upon the life of Jack Dempsey. End of chapter 10